if you have a copy of God's Word, if you would take it and open with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, continuing even in the essence of the song we just uh, proclaimed together, uh, the leadership of the Lord in times and struggles, and particularly in 1 Peter, we see it as, as Peter was writing to a church that was scattered and exiled all over the region, uh, the dependence upon God uh, for him to lead them. We're continuing to explore the unique relationship that Peter is writing to address between suffering and sanctification. Uh, Last week, we saw Pastor Andrew preach the concluding chapter 3 that God prepares us. He he calls us uh, to be ready, to be ready to, to suffer for righteousness is that paragraph heading in your Bible. And this week, we continue, as that thought continues in chapter 4, to see and consider what that readiness looks like. And as Peter continues his, his argument, what well, the, the emphasis he's making here is that that readiness looks like we, us, the, the people of God, living for the will of God. If you'll follow along, I'll read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll walk through this text together. Verse 1, Since therefore Peter suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And verse 6 says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way that God does. You pray with me. Father, as we approach this text, we are dependent upon on you and, and the leadership of your spirit, God, to open our hearts. Lord, we ask, God, humbly, in all dependence upon you, Lord, that you would convict us of sin. Lord, open our, our hearts and minds that we would see just a glimpse, Lord, just a picture of the will of God. And Lord, I pray that in light of that, you would compel us to live in the spirit, to live in right relationship with God this morning, seeking your will in all things, dependent upon your spirit for all things. So Lord, we ask you to do that by the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the million dollar question of the Christian life is this, what is the will of God? You've asked it, perhaps you even ask it walking into the doors of worship this morning. I would argue it's probably the most asked question in the Christian life. What about your kids? Do you send them to private school? Do you send them to public school? Do you homeschool them? What is the will of God for you? What is the will of God for your career? Do you seek this promotion? Do you seek this job change? Do you live in this house or that house, buy this car or that car? Do you attend this college or that college? What is the will of God for me? We've asked the question 
And in some ways, I believe this is the question that Peter is seeking to give some, some structure to in 1 Peter chapter 4. And I think it might be helpful for us to consider the, the will of God in a couple of different ways using a, a couple of different terms. One, I, I would say, is the, the principle of God's will. So what does God's word say God's will is? That's the principle of God's will. And then the second is the practice of God's will. So how do you take what God's word says God's will is, and then how do you, as an individual Christian, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, how do you, as a Christian, live that out? Let me perhaps give explanation or illustration to that. So the question about schooling your children. The principle of Scripture is found in Proverbs and multiple other places, that you, as a parent, are charged with training a child up in the way in which they should go. And in Christian freedom, that means some Christian parents will choose to send their kids to public school. Others will send their kids to private school. And others will homeschool. Different practices, all the same principle. The call of the Christian parent is to raise their child in the way in which they should go. Or consider material possessions. The, the principal will of God in Scripture is that you be faithful as a steward of all that God has entrusted to you. So you will not have to stand before God and give an account for where you lived or how big your house was or how little your house was. You know, the question he's going to ask you is this. Did you steward that square footage well? That's the question he's going to ask. Did you steward the resources that were entrusted to you in your job well? Did you spend them on selfish desires or did you spend them on kingdom desires? You see, principle and practice. There's a lot of principle in Scripture that we, I think, as Christians are still wrestling with. And, and even to kind of pop the hood, if you will, of some of the questions that even your leadership as a church are wrestling with, your pastors and, and deacons are, are wrestling with, is questions like this. Is it God's will that we do not baptize anyone this year? Because unless something changes in the next couple months, that's where we're going to be at the end of 2022. Is that the will of God for First Baptist Church? Or is this generational gap that we have in our church, the generational imbalance that we see across our ministries and across the sanctuary this morning, is this God's will for First Baptist Church? It's principle and practice. Even this week, I had an opportunity with some uh, leaders within our association to go up to Roanoke Rapids and to walk through a church that is closed. Closed. This Sunday morning, it sits empty, a beautiful facility with no one to fill it. Is that the will of God? As we wrestle with these questions, I think 1 Peter 4 is helpful for us. Because what we see is a picture of God who redeems and restores our missteps back into his will. Like We know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the cross of Christ is this, that God is a God who redeems and he restores so the great hope for that empty church this morning in Roanoke Rapids is this, that there is a group of leaders in this association scheming to change the narrative of that church. That, that vibrant neighborhood in which that church is located, that church would open again and be salt and light in that particular neighborhood. See, there's hope there for us in our hearts. There's nothing within our hearts that God cannot redeem, that God cannot Restore, and it brings us back to the principle and practice of God's will. And again, I believe this is what Peter is, is arguing here in chapter 4. He's reminding these Christians and exiles, yes, they're scattered. Yes, they're frustrated. Yes, they're even under suffering and persecution. 
But in those moments of frustration, he's writing to remind them, do not forget, do not forget about the will of God. Do not forget that you are my people. Do not forget that I am your God. Do not forget that I've given you my word as authority in your life and over your life. And to that end, I believe we'll see in these verses three lessons that Peter teaches us on living for the will of God. And you'll see these reflected in the outline in your bulletin. We live for the will of God first by choosing suffering over sin. Let's return to verse 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 1 begins, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Peter is drawing our hearts and minds back to a verse from last week's text. That's chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteousness, or for the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter is drawing their minds back to that truth because Christ has done that for you, because he has suffered, past tense, referring to a definitive action, not an ongoing process, because Christ suffered on the cross for your sins. Therefore, we can live for the will of God. But what exactly did his suffering accomplish? Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, a beautiful explanation of this. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. You remember this text from a few weeks ago? By his wounds you have been healed. So what did his suffering accomplish for you? It accomplished death to sin for you. It accomplished living to righteousness for you. It provided for you healing. You see, it's this truth that guides this entire passage this morning. Because this is true, we are called to imitate him. And somehow, in the mind of God, that suffering is the means to sanctification. Because that's true, here's the command that Peter gives here. He says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. Get ready for war. Get ready for battle. It fits Peter's theme here elsewhere in this book where he says to get ready, to always be prepared. To do what? To suffer. He's reminding them there is hardship ahead. So arm yourselves. But look how we are to arm ourselves. In this way of what? Thinking. Not acting. Arm yourselves in this way of thinking. He's telling us, in your minds, be mentally ready, spiritually ready to be prepared for suffering, to be prepared for temptation. Because what we know about temptation is temptation comes in a moment, in a millisecond, doesn't it? It's one image that leads you to lust. It's one dollar that leads you to greed. It's one thought that leads you to doubt. It's one word that leads you to anger. And what Peter is saying here is, get ready. Before that word comes, before that thought comes, before that dollar comes, before temptation even comes, get ready beforehand. Perhaps an illustration of hurricane preparation is helpful here, right? We learned this in moving to eastern North Carolina. It's kind of like a snowstorm in western North Carolina. 
But if you wait to the last day to go to the grocery store and get what you need before the hurricane comes, you're not going to find any bread or milk. You've waited too long to prepare. I don't know how much bread or milk you need to survive a hurricane, but it won't be on the shelves. Spiritually, what Peter's saying here is don't wait to the last moment to get ready. Suffering's coming. Temptation will enter your life probably before this sermon is even over. And the heart of the Christian is to be ready, to be prepared. And here's the connection. Why? Because to suffer is the call to cease from sin. Because Christ has suffered, sin has ceased. Romans 6 says it beautifully. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You see, if you have died to sin, then sin is dead to you. What Peter's arguing here is he's juxtaposing here that the human passions of the flesh and the will of God for your life. And he's highlighting the cross of Christ in such a way that because Christ has suffered, then we can live for the will of God. Or to say that differently, the will of God is only found as we no longer follow human passions. You see, seeking God's will and following sin of the flesh are incompatible with one another. Because the great truth of this text is that we have been released from something for something. We have been released from sin for God's will. So we are free from sin so that we are now free to follow God's will. And you cannot hang on to both. You can look around the world and see scores of people who are trying. Trying to be relevant or contemporary and try to live in the best of both worlds. But the great truth is that that will kill you. You can't live in both worlds. You remember the stories of the old torture technique of quartering? Maybe you've seen it in an old western or read about it in an old book where they would tie one of your limbs to four different horses and the horses would take off running in four different directions and you can imagine what would happen to your limbs. Like That's literally spiritually what happens when you try to play with sin and not follow the will of God. It will devour you. It will destroy you. And Peter is reminding them, hey, don't play these games. Choose suffering over sin. And although even in those terms it does not sound too appealing, we have to remember that when we're choosing suffering, we're choosing a, a life of Christ-likeness. It's what we're called to, to follow Jesus. You see, it was Christ. This is what he's chosen for you and empowered within you. The famous text, Ephesians chapter 2, you have died to sin and you are now what? Alive in Christ. We're applied in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. You're to take up your cross and follow me. It's the invitation to die to sin and be alive in Christ. It's how we live for the will of God. It's how we live the Christian life. Secondly, we are to surprise others with our holiness. Look how he says it in verse 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are, what, surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. What Peter is saying here, he's writing to the scattered Christian and saying, hey, the time is past for you to live like a sinner. The time is over for you to live in sin. So whatever your sin choice was before coming to the Lord, 
whatever your continual struggle is, your sin of continual struggle is, since coming to the Lord, Peter is writing to them and to us to say this, that time is past for you to live in those ways. Jesus says it like this on the cross. You remember what he says? It is finished. And in that moment, yes, he's talking about a moment in redemptive history, but he's also making a very definitive claim about your own sin history. He's saying that this sacrifice has finished the consequences of sin for you. So we find ourselves today in a world where too many Christians are living in and longing for a life gone by. The list of of sins in verse 3 relate to a particular Roman world, a Roman culture, and there's probably some comparison there to that and our world we find ourselves in. And, And Peter is reminding them, hey, do not forget who you are. Do not forget the price that I have paid for you. Do not forget the life that I have called you to. And he explains that beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So Christians who feel scattered this morning, who feel distracted this morning, who feel disjointed this morning, this is who Peter is writing to address. And he, remind, he writes to remind them, do not forget that you are my chosen people. You are my chosen possession. So we're to live among these people as his people in such a way that verse 4 says that that truth is met with surprise. That the world around us is surprised that we not join in I love how it says it, the same flood of debauchery. That there should be an element about our lives. When the, when the world looks in upon our hearts, upon our lives, with the speech that we use, the actions that we choose, and they are surprised that we stand out and stand alone. You see, it's okay for us to be strange in this world because the Bible teaches us that we are strangers in this world. We don't even need to try to be at home here that God has called us, he's chosen us to be strangers and aliens here on this time on the earth. Why? Because we're his, and therefore our lives are to surprise others with our holiness. Colossians 3 says it like this, that we are to put to death what is earthly in you. Listen, church, we're not to leave sin on life support. Put to death what is earthly in you. Or Luke chapter 9 says it like this. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What Peter's reminding them and us today is this, that even though this might not be what you expect it to be, even though your life might not add up to what you'd like for it to add up to, keep your hand to the plow of the Christian life. Be faithful where God has called you. Keep your hand to the plow. Surprise this sinful world with your commitment to Christ. Why? Because we are to live a strange life in a foreign world. That's the Christian life. Why? By surprising others with your holiness. That we take the word of God and we believe that God meant what he says and we live by it. And listen, that's enough to make us mighty strange in this crazy world. And that's what Peter's reminding them to say. You might be scattered. 
but remember that you are my people. Remember you are called to live in my will, to surprise them with holiness. So we live for the will of God by choosing suffering over sin, by surprising others with holiness. And finally, that last little phrase of verse 6, powerful, that we live in the Spirit. We've already asked God, told the Holy Spirit, he's welcome in our midst. We've asked him in worship to lead us and to guide us. Look at how Peter instructs on how we are to do this. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. He's writing them to say, like, if you live the life that I've called you to live, doesn't say they might malign you. They will malign you. They will. One day, they will have to give an account to the one true judge, and so will you. So may the account that you give reflect the life that I've called you to live. And then he goes on to clarify it in this way. He said, this is why the gospel was preached to you. Translation is, for this very reason is why the gospel was made known to you, that you may live in the Spirit. Because even those who are now dead, those who've received the gospel, believed in the gospel, is what Peter is writing, and, and have now died. There's hope for them too, because they too are alive with this same spirit. I love how that last phrase ends, the way God does. Don't miss the hope of this promise, that one day we will exchange the hell of this earth for the heaven of eternity. This is what awaits us, Christian. This is what awaits us, church, when our faith will become sight and we will live in the Spirit of God the way God does. But you see, this is not just an invitation we have to wait on eternity to receive. I love getting an invitation in the mail, don't you? Graduation party, uh, perhaps it's a, it's, a, it's a wedding that's coming up from a friend or family member. The joy, it, it, it's an invitation for you to come and join this beautiful and joyful celebration. They want you to be their guest to celebrate this moment. You see, this is the invitation that we have in this moment that God has offered to us in Christ. The way God does life in the Spirit. He says, this is why the gospel was preached to you, Christian, so that you could have this life too. It is an invitation into the life of Christ, made known by the Spirit of the living God. You see, the cross of Christ allows us to live the life of Christ. We do not have to wait for eternity to enjoy the beauty of this relationship. Peter is writing to remind them and to say to them, listen, live in the will of God. The spirit of the living God is not just something that you will enjoy for all eternity. It's something that you will enjoy every day on your way to eternity. So place your hope there. So what does that mean for us? It means, listen, church, that suffering does not get the last word. Death does not get the last word. I remember Monday of this week, I'd started wrestling with some of the, the details of this text. And Monday, I, I attended the funeral of a family in our church, one of their family members. And then I, on my way back from the funeral, I stopped at two different church members that we have um, on hospice care, both of which have now gone on to be with Jesus this week. 
and in that, just driving home after the weight of all of that, just, and then reflecting on this text and putting all this together, like, listen, these sorrows and situations, they may last for a night, but what does scripture teach comes in the morning? There's joy that comes in the morning. Why? Because these beloved saints are now with Jesus. You see, death doesn't get the last word, and that's what Peter is writing to remind them to say, that cancer does not get the last word. Mistreatment does not get the last word. Jesus gets the last word, and there's hope for us, Christian, in that truth. There's hope for us, church, in that truth, that when he spoke the words, it is finished, he was talking about your sin. He was talking about his sacrifice on the cross for you. Because that's true. There's no more fear. No more reason to fight the battles of this earth because our home is now in heaven. And the will of God is made known as we live with this kind of hope. And Peter is writing to remind them, listen, chapter 1, he calls them elect exiles, Christians scattered all throughout the region. Remember, don't forget, you're called to live in the will of God by the Spirit of God. It might be hard now, but the promise of this text, the promise for us this morning is it is worth it in the end. So my brother and sister in Christ, may our hearts receive that same truth this morning. I don't know the hardness of your particular situation. I know this week, members of our family have received diagnoses that are scary. There's unknown there. I know members of our family are, are walking through the death of a loved one. I know members of our church family are walking through just continual strife and frustration at work or a family struggle that has them by the heel and won't let go. Hear the truth of these words this morning. Endure, for it is worth it in the end. Live in the will of God, by the Spirit of God. It's the life that God has called us to live. It's the way God has called us to live. Why? Because we have been released from something for something. We have been released from sin for God's will. It's the life that we're called to live, and all of this is possible because of the cross of Christ. Going back to verse 1 of chapter 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. His suffering was not wasted. There's hope there. There's trust there that when God sent his sinless son into a sinful world to live the perfect life that we could not live, to suffer and, and die and pay both the, the punishment and penalty for your sin, a, a punishment and penalty that we deserve to die. When God sent his son to do that, he offered us forgiveness, offered us freedom, offered us salvation to call us to live for the will of God because we are dead to sin alive in Christ. And God never promises that our life here on this earth will be easy. But you know what he does promise? Is that it will be worth it. There are frustrations, there are disappointments, there are challenges. And Peter is writing to remind that church and our church here today to live for the will of God within them. By the spirit of the living God. Don't forget this is the life that we have been called to live in the midst of these struggles, in the midst of these challenges, in the midst of these disappointments. I think this truth is illustrated beautifully 
in one of our, probably most of your, one of your favorite hymns. It is well, written by, the, by Horatio Spafford. You may know the story, you may remember the story. But let me illustrate it, what I believe Peter is teaching through the writing of this hymn. You see, Horatio Spafford knew a thing or two about life's unexpected challenges. He was a successful attorney. attorney. He made a lot of money in real estate development and investing, but then the Chicago fire of 1871 took nearly all that he had. And at the same time, his beloved four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. And he thought, what my family needs most is just a little break from this city, from this hardship. And so they planned this vacation to England. He sent his wife and four daughters ahead on a ship, thinking he would finish up some loose ends at work and he would join them in England and they would enjoy this holiday as a family together and reset on the struggles that they had just walked through. Perhaps you know the story that while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship that his wife and four daughters were on was involved in a terrible collision and sunk. And his four daughters were four of the 200 people that lost their lives. And his wife, Anna, survived the, the, the tragedy. And upon arriving in England, she sent word to her husband saying, Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England and at the point of the voyage, the captain of the ship was aware of what was going on and he called Horatio and said, this is the place that the shipwreck happened. And as Horatio thought about his daughter's words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind and he wrote them down and you've probably sung them a hundred times. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know who can say that? A Christian that is living in the will of God by the Spirit of God. There's no other explanation. And so for us, as we consider that application to our own hearts and lives, we live in the will of God. We choose suffering over sin. We surprise the world with our holiness. We live in the Spirit of God so that when peace comes, when sorrows like sea billows crash against you, can any of y'all relate to that truth this morning, that feeling this morning? Here's the call to follow Jesus, to die to sin, to, to hope in heaven so that your heart can proclaim whatever my lot, whatever happens to me on the face of this earth, good, bad, and the ugly, whatever it is, I can say it is well with my soul. Why? Because by the spirit of the living God, by the strength that I can only find there, I'm seeking and striving to live in the will of God. Christian, may that be true of your heart this morning. Church, may that be true of our heart this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray. Aware. God, we don't, we don't check our feelings at the door. We don't check our struggles at the door and just slap a smile on and act like everything's okay. So God, we are aware of the struggles that exist in our body this morning, our family of faith. And nonetheless, God, your word calls us not to depend upon our own strength or not to depend upon our own spirit or not even, God, to find our own will within the life you've called us to live. That God, your word calls us to depend upon your spirit to live for your will.
for your glory. And so, Lord, as our hearts are open to that truth, we pray that you would lead them to application. Lord, lead them to invitation that we, your people, might rightly respond to the truth of your word today. That we would choose life and life that's found only in the spirit of the living God. That we would live in the will of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.